0: When you follow the steps you're like oh my god i can't believe i'm watching this unfold in front of me in the media and that's you know that's basically how i've been feeling for the past year at least
1: ladies and gentlemen be
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What's going on, folks? This is Tim Banal of banalofamerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Bit of a wild one here this week, bit of a unique edition of the program. We've already gotten a ton of feedback to... Last week's edition of the show, which featured Christopher Knowles, author of Our Gods Wear Spandex, an in-depth look at the occult and comic books, and I'm happy to report, if you haven't figured it out by now, Christopher Knowles is back here this week for part two of our conversation, this time around looking at his critically acclaimed and increasingly popular blog, The Secret Sun*. And as I noted at the beginning of the show last week, Christopher Knowles was super cool during this whole Coca-Cola Equipment Meltdown, and let us tape a whole new episode with him about a week after we had taped the original episode. The cool part about the first half of this week's episode is that by the time we got to this point in the conversation, Christopher Knowles and I had probably talked for over five hours total between the two weeks, and there was definitely a jam session feel to it we just threw the playbook out the window and talked about a whole bunch of different stuff. Then in the second half of what you're going to hear this week on the program, I went back to that original interview that got thrown on the scrap heap, cleaned it up, and then pulled out the clips and segments of stuff that we didn't talk about in our follow-up interview. So altogether, I managed to cull about an hour of additional material from Christopher Knowles, not just on The Secret Sun but also a bunch of extra nuggets from our conversation covering Our Gods wear Spandex. So altogether, it is a pretty massive edition of the show here for you. Let me give you a quick point-by-point rundown of what we're going to be talking about. As noted, it's really quite a jam session style when we're covering The Secret Sun. So it's not really question and answer. It's more just point response, if that makes any sense. And some of the areas we're going to be talking about are the Vatican and the Royal Society and how they're talking about aliens all of a sudden. What does that all mean? And then we're going to sort of muse on the fact that it seems like something is looming on the horizon. We'll reflect on mythic elements and how they're working their way into our everyday world and the ongoing subliminal references to Sirius, which Christopher has picked up from the mainstream media. That's all from our second conversation, then, in the Select Cuts portion of the show. You're going to hear us talk about the esoteric implications of the number 17, Christopher's deep interest in the ancient astronaut theory, and the secret knowledge of the early occult groups, what were they all about, as well as the water meme, which he has noticed over the last few years. The stuff covering Our God's Wear Spendex includes Superman as Messiah figure and symbol for Jewish assimilation, the mutation of the superhero archetype, and discussion on a bunch of different pop culture stuff like Avatar, the Twilight series, and I had to stick it in here, my friends, Howard the Duck. Yes, we do talk a little bit about the infamous Howard the Duck. So it is a real... Booyah base of esoteric discussion here with Christopher Knowles. It's fast, it's loose, it's really a lot of fun. I hope folks dig it as much as part one. I put a lot of extra work into this episode, really because Christopher Knowles was just so generous with his time, we just couldn't leave a lot of that material on the cutting room floor because it was fresh stuff that we just did not talk about in part two, so I had to really dig into that. But in the end, having looked at the episode, having listened to it, it was totally worth it because there is so much material in this episode of the show. Once again, got to tip my hat to Christopher Knowles. He is definitely one of Esoterica's brightest new emerging stars. And his generosity with BOA Audio really went above and beyond the call of duty. So thank you once again to Christopher Knowles for just being super cool about this whole situation. And in the end, it all worked out for the best because we've got... A wealth of stuff for the BOA Audio listeners, definitely a two-parter for the history books of the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Christopher Knowles, allow me to provide you with a little bit of background on him. Christopher Knowles is the author of the Eagle Award-winning Our Gods Wears Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and the critically acclaimed Clash City Showdown, the music, meaning, and legacy of The Clash, as well as co-author of The Complete X-Files, Behind the Series, the Myths, and the Movies. He was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as a writer and reviewer for the UK magazine Classic Rock. Knowles wrote the definitive history of the cult classic film Lucifer Rising for Classic Rock, which featured exclusive interviews with Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, director Kenneth Anger, and Manson family member Bobby Busselil. The Lucifer Rising cover story earned Classic Rock its best-selling issue to date. Knowles has explained the ongoing collision between myth, ancient symbolism, and modern culture on several radio shows and podcasts, and has appeared in the documentaries Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth, The Man, The Myth, Superman, and Wendy O. Williams, and The Plasmatics. He was invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, in 2008 and 2009. He blogs daily at The Secret Sun. And you can find that at www.secretsun.blogspot.com, pretty simple, secretsun.blogspot.com, check it out. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. The first half of this interview was recorded on January 30th, 2010, the latter half recorded on the previous Friday, January 22nd, Christopher Knowles in an esoteric jam session on Myth, Ancient Symbolism and Pop Culture on BOA Audio Season 5. And that's actually a good segue, I guess, to discuss now your groundbreaking blog. It is just growing in popularity all the time. And literally here I posted on the Twitter while we were doing the interview that I'm doing an interview with you and I already got a response from someone that says, yay, so.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the cult of Knowles is growing <laughs> 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 by, by the by the by the blog post it seems. <laughs> so I guess Well, I worked
0: very very hard on that blog, so. <laughs> I
2: can I can tell, dude. I mean, there's like 800 posts here and you've only been really been up and running and cooking on it for like a year and a half. So I mean, obviously you are putting out a ton of material. I guess, you know, to sort of start out the discussion on Secret Sun, you know, tell people, you know, what what's it all about, how did it come about, and, you know, what what sort of stuff are you looking at on the Secret Sun?
0: Well, it started out because my publisher wanted me to have some sort of online presence to promote the book, and I, I, I had a blog on Amazon as well. And it, I wanted to launch a blog because I had done what is now called synchromysticism for several years on my own, uh, at least since the late '90s. And what I had done previously is that I had an email. My email friends that I sort of bounce back a lot of the same kind of ideas that you see on the blog. I, so I've been just I've been doing this for a long time, and when I saw people like Jake Kotze and Steve Wilner and and Goro Adachi doing their own versions of that, uh, also influenced by Richard Hoagland's work, by the way, from the say the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, I I said, well, you know, maybe I should start doing this myself because I have been collecting all this material for all these years, uh, symbolism and synchronicity and all these wonderful things that I thought, well, maybe I should start to blog on this stuff. And it built, you know, over a period of time, it, it built up, uh, built up a following. And I, I'm very happy with. Uh, I don't want to jinx it, but I'm, you know, I'm very happy right now. You know, I don't want it to get too big and and get crazy. And I'm also very gratified by the kind of feedback I get I get I get a very uh, high quality level of, of, of comments and feedback that I'm, I'm very always very gratified to read but anyhow um, what I was doing originally is just sort of expanding on some of the ideas that I had been exploring in spandex I, I just wanted to take it to another level um, and I was started off I was just fascinated by Manhattan architecture and all the esoteric and mythological symbolism that you see walking around, you know, for instance, Rockefeller Center or Rockefeller Plaza. I had a friend who used to take me on these walking tours. He had started off as a delivery boy, so he he knew all the great lobbies. And it's just a it's a treasure trove, you know, some of these areas in midtown Manhattan to see all this mythological art all over the place because there was this whole era in the late late 1800s, early 20th century, you know, the neoclassical revival, Art Deco, all these sort of things that you started to see all this imagery out there and I, I, I'd argued in the book that that had a huge impact on the superheroes. And that just started you know, one thing led to another. I, I had started off I guess I would say late 80s early 90s I was really heavily into the UFO material. Uh, I was reading, you know, Intruders and uh, Communion, you know, all these documentaries, UFO documentaries with people like Stan Friedman and Jacques Vallée that were all being sort of passed around by a very small and dedicated underground of UFO enthusiasts and that sort of flowered with sightings which I mentioned before. I don't know how many people have ever seen that show. Have you? Have you heard of that show?
2: Sightings? sightings? Oh yeah, I remember sightings.
0: Yeah, and that, and then of course that led into the X Files, and then the X Files just changed everything for me. Really, my first public work with the kind of things you see on the Secret Sun, and people keep asking me to repost this, and I, 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 I promise you that it will will go back up soon. As I sort of looked at the uh, X Files myth arc and how that tied into Egyptian mythology. Um, and I had done that in 2004, late 2004, and it was, it was, you know, really big hit with all the X-Files fans. And that sort of encouraged me to write this book uh, on sci-fi, where I sort of took the same idea, you know, of the symbolism of, of, you know, mythological and occult symbolism of science fiction film. And uh, that turned into a 500-page Manuscript so what I wanted to do on the blog is sort of road test a lot of the ideas that i had been exploring In the manuscript and see how people responded to them. It's a great way to get sort of instant feedback Yeah, you know like does this idea make sense? but I had sort of I guess in after my big UFO enthusiastic period it sort of segued into an interest in the secret societies you know, the occult groups, uh, you know, that that whole constellation, that stuff is very big there today uh, in the wake of, I guess, Da Vinci Code and, you know, the conspiracy underground is sort of driving a lot of this. I mean, I was reading this stuff 15 years ago and I guess sort of grew out of it somewhere in the middle of the blog. I I, I guess 2008 is when I really just stopped thinking in those terms. I stopped thinking about uh, you know the Masonic stuff so much um, because it all seemed very old to me. It, you know that a, a, lot, and a lot of the stuff you see being circulated, you know, you'll still see stories about Alice Bailey, who's been dead over 50 years, and Blavatsky, who we discussed before. Yeah. And you know, this stuff still has currency, but it's all it's all just completely just it's it's in the past.
2: Right, and, it's like a rehash.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's when I sort of started to begin seguing more into the ufo and alien and which was really sort of returned to my roots i guess you'd almost say But there was this 15 year lapse maybe even over 15 years in between sort of bookended where i started of gotten more into the mysticism and the esotericism and then returned back into the the alien end of the spectrum i guess you would say <laughs> and that's you know really what i've um has really been the driving undercurrent of the blog in a lot of ways and i guess maybe i was anticipating something subconsciously because of course in recent days and weeks that's become much more of a pressing issue in a lot of circles you know not the least of which is the vatican and the the royal society which just as we were discussing before off off air just completely blows my mind i i you know the vatican took what, 500 years to uh, absolve Galileo of heresy and uh, 700 years to absolve the Templars of heresy. They work very slow. They take a very long view of things. They take a very long time to make decisions about important issues. But boy, they're all horny about aliens, aren't they? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just... It's very shocking to me because I I understand what a conservative organization that is and how slowly they take things and what a long view they take of things and how skeptical they are of what they perceive as fads. And you know, a fad to them is something that popped up two hundred years ago, you know. When you're a two thousand year old organization, you tend to do that. But just the fact that they've been talking about this so much and we've seen so much of this in the media is, you know, quite frankly, shocking to me. And What's even more shocking to me is the fact that the same people who've been ridiculing and excoriating and condemning and blacklisting people who even discussed uh, anything to do with extraterrestrials, and that would be, you know, these individuals involved in the, the Royal Society orbit of, of of high science, you know, are all of a sudden calling in some very interesting uh, theorists about this. I mean, I, I'm, I don't understand why they're so interested in this topic all of a sudden it's uh it's very confusing to me but i feel in some way that the currents the synchromistic currents have been leading leading us there yeah. for a couple of years now to be honest you know
2: i've heard you know different perspectives i guess on the vatican thing I'd put forward the idea that maybe this has been something that they've been talking about behind the scenes for like 40 or year, 50 years, and now it's just finally coming out. And maybe
0: 400 or 500 years.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, considering what people say about the Vatican Archive and everything, I mean, they may, they may have no way more about the aliens than if they, you know, for quote-unquote aliens, than any of us do, you know? Yes. So... Plus they have all
0: those observatories as well.
2: Exactly, exactly. And uh, we had Stan Friedman on for the holiday special, and he sort of put forward, I think it was him, uh, sort of put forward the idea that maybe they're trying to avoid uh, this Galileo, that Galileo situation by, you know, being ahead of the curve this time instead of being, like, behind the times. But what does that imply?
0: That implies that they are expecting something to happen. Yeah. On the surface of it, there's no pressing compelling event or situation to want them to be ahead of the curve so why are all of a sudden they're so you know concerned about getting ahead of that curve I mean that's that's not the way they operate if you're familiar with that organization that's just not the way they operate if they're trying to get ahead of the curve it by you know it, definition it, it, there has
2: to be a curve
0: yeah exactly it implies foreknowledge. I mean, that, that's when you start to get into, you know, tinfoil hat conjecture. But that kind of rhetoric that we're hearing from, I think it justifies it.
2: Absolutely. Hey, this program is all about tinfoil hat conjecture. So, well, I love it. Yeah, you know? we have no problem with that. I'm a card-carrying member of the tinfoil hat brigade. But I'll so.
0: tell you something. It becomes a lot less tinfoil when you see some of the people discussing this.
2: Exactly. Topic. Exactly. Well,
0: it goes shocking to me, you know, because we've been so conditioned by these people for so long. You know, it's sort of like every time you put your elbows on the table, your mother slaps your hand with her, the wooden spoon, and you know that's been happening for sixty years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the wooden spoon is gone, and you have to wonder. And not only that, but your mother's elbows are on the table. You really have to wonder <laughs> what is going on. I mean, it's extremely
2: strange. It goes to the idea too that. That uh, we've talked about on this show before. Just that if and when the UFO reality is confirmed, the ufologists are out and the real scientists are in, and they're not gonna—they're not gonna eat crow about it. They're just gonna be like, "Now we're playing by these rules, and yes, UFOs are real." They won't have any qualms about being on board with it. So.
0: Well, you're right. It'll be this very Stalinist revisionist rewriting of history right or or actually, what they will come out and say is that you know this was being done for social considerations yeah. that, that that this was being done out of social necessity, but by the same token, I'm not quite sure that the scientists themselves would be all that relevant in that in that event. I think that when you're dealing. With obviously with a science that is is far superior to our own by definition, because we cannot leave the solar system, we can't even. I'm not entirely convinced that we can leave low orbit. To be honest with you, that is going to make anything that we have for science as irrelevant as current ufology. Yeah. I mean, I've always seen that, and again, this gets back to the Royal Society and the Vatican that those who would be most threatened by some hypothetical and let's make sure that we're, you know, staying in the conjecture or speculation area here. Yeah. You know, just hypothetically speaking, the the people who would be most threatened by this are the, the people who are the guardians of, of the sciences and of the cosmologies. And I think the fact that the Vatican is so far ahead of this where the other major religious systems, particularly Evangelical and fundamental Protestantism are, are still in the demonology mode. Says quite a bit to me because, first of all, the, the you know the level of intelligence. I mean, just probably the levels of raw IQ are probably astronomically uh, different between the the Vatican hierarchy and you know whatever bozos are leading the the megachurches and whatnot. So I mean, there's going to be a, a, obviously a difference in perspective there. But again, I mean. The Royal Society has a lot to lose um, they, they have their authority They have their authority as the guardians Of, of the sciences And I, uh, certainly That the cosmology And theologies and, and our place in the universe And all that sort of thing Would be rewritten by definition Because we've been conditioned to believe For thousands of years That, that not only are we the center of the universe But you know that the sun revolved around us And, and, and whatnot. not Yeah you know so i mean it's a, it's a major paradigm shift uh will it happen in our lifetime i uh, i'm not convinced that it will but i i feel that we're we're closer than ever uh in very very compelling ways uh, i will tell you i mean just the fact that, that that these people are willing to go out on a limb uh tells me a lot and i know for a fact uh that the military has always been very far in front of both of them on this issue for, you know, for obvious reasons. Again, there's a lot of theorizing that this could be a false flag, that this could be a setup, you know, some sort of put on, some sort of show, some sort of manipulation. And that is certainly a possibility. I I, I would not argue with that possibility. The way it's unfolding doesn't really strike me as the way these things unfold when, for instance, look at the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, You know, obviously it put on no weapons of mass destruction, none of that. It was all a show. But they were very deliberate about hammering these ideas into people's heads in a very systematic way. That's not what we're seeing now. We're seeing, you know, again, back in the tinfoil conjecture area, we're seeing what I would almost describe as a panic.
2: Yeah, like a chaotic situation.
0: Yeah, it seems very random and reactive. It does not seem proactive, and I think that's really the big difference. When there's obviously a setup, uh, there's a a sense of a proactive agenda, and I'm not sensing that. And I think that a lot of people might disagree with me, and – you know that's fine, and I will listen the way that they have to say, but I will, at the end of the day, still disagree with them because I've been watching this, this issue for, for quite some time, and something feels very different right now. And I can't really put my finger on it, but something definitely does feel very different.
2: Now what about the idea, and I've kind of talked about this on the show previously too, just that there's this generational shift going on where – Uh, I'm 31, I turned 31 last week, uh, unfortunately, Um, where people like of my age and and younger and even your age now, you know, sort of grew up in a different era where UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrials and all that stuff, uh, you know, it went from being something that was debated, I think, like in the 60s and 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, to at some point, I feel like in the 80s, 90s, and and the aughts, like, almost became, like, an established fact without ever being said. Do you know what I mean? And it's still obviously debated and, and, you know, like, not accepted by the mainstream. But I feel like the younger generation sort of is like, yeah, UFOs are real and the government just covers it up.
0: Well, right, and I think a lot of it has to do with the Internet and people accessing information outside of the New York Times, you know, filter controls. And also I think that uh, cynicism, justified cynicism, justified skepticism about the government, about the authorities, about our institutions, that we are in a point in our history where we have very compelling reason to be skeptical and cynical that, leads to an all bets are off kind of mentality where who knows if they're lying about this, what else are they lying about? Yeah, you know, we know that they're lying about this, we know that they lied about this. You know, there's this whole litany. You know, ironically there's an episode of the X Files where there's this guy who works for the military who's not privy to the real story but has this very um, skeptical take on on the UFO threat, and he's saying that this is all this 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 big program put on by the military to justify you know human experiments and all this kind of stuff, and he talks about Tuskegee, yeah, and he talks about mK ultra you know, and all these kind of things, you know, that, and it's pretty remarkable that, you know, Chris Carter's writing all of this into the, into the show, and and this is stuff all from, you know, conspiracy literature, you know, and I think people don't give him credit for that, but anyhow, there's that whole viewpoint uh, that if all these things that we've been lied to about, and all these examples, you know, MKUltra is, is a great example of that, you know, I mean, I was in a, 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 a symposium at Esalen with Russell Targ and Russell Targ was one of the movers and shakers of the remote viewing program at SRI yeah. And he referred to Sidney Gottlieb as America's Joseph Mengele. You know, that is a very serious thing to say, you know uh, That's a heavy thing to say and that shows you just how deep that betrayal was. yeah, You know, how, how deeply we were betrayed. I mean, I think there's a lot of really stupid and bogus MK Ultra lore, but at the core of it was a very abusive, seriously abusive uh, betrayal of, of our trust and a betrayal of our personage and our personhood. So, if that, you know, it, it becomes, the more we learn about the more subtle and maybe the less earth-shaking betrayals <laughs> as far as the, the, the implications of it. Maybe the fact that, that Roswell was a cover-up doesn't seem so far-fetched. And certainly the excuses and the, the cover stories uh, about Roswell and, and all these other issues don't fill anyone with any confidence that the <laughs> yeah. government's telling the truth. Yeah. You know, I mean, why why should people believe them? I mean, I, I think that... um. I mean, look what we saw in the news just this week. You know, Tony Blair saying, "Okay, I knew that all this information about Saddam and the Iraq War was was bogus, and it was all invented, and it was all fake." But you know, the the, I I don't regret I don't regret what I did. You know, he's just completely justifying. It's like it's like Nuremberg or something. You know, but I don't know. It's just such a strange period in time right now. Something just feels like so off so off, and uh, in that light, I just would not... And any possibilities right now, I, I would not discount out of hand, because I've seen so many certainties dissolve you know,
2: yeah, in my lifetime. Just to bring it back to what I was saying about the generational thing, uh, and then tie it into what you were saying about the Royal Astronomy Society, maybe, and the Vatican, maybe... They're trying to get a handle not so much on some impending event but just the changing shift in perspective of the human race. You know what I mean, like I said, uh, you know the younger generations coming along, they are more accepting of of aliens and everything as as a fact and and in turn, these institutions need to sort of get a handle on how they're gonna handle that because previously. With the older generation, they could just sort of dismiss it, but that's not possible anymore. I mean, like, this is 10 uh, speculation as we have. As we have that's a
0: not about. the vibe I'm getting, though. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I think that's possible, but I, I think that they are being much more reactive than that. I mean, that, that, again, that gets back to the proactive reactive. That sort of implies that they're being proactive, and I just don't feel that. I feel that they're privy to information that we are not.
2: Nice. I like that. I, 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 I listen, Do you know I mean, what the information is? No, I'm just teasing you, dude. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I'm, I'm serious, though. No, I, mean, no, I know. That, that, I mean, that may not be true. Certainly, you know, very possibly, you know, it could not be true, but that's just the way it's coming across to me. That's the way I'm interpreting the behavior, to be honest with you. Um, you know, be just very blunt with you. Yeah, no. I, I, mean, I feel like there are people involved in these organizations who have a knowledge that is not being shared, and quite frankly, seem very concerned about. So, uh, how that plays out, I, I I don't know. But that is just that is my interpretation, and people can disagree with me, and I respect that, and I understand that. I'm not, I I wouldn't necessarily even argue with that. I'm just telling you what I'm feeling out there, and you know, it's it's interesting because on the blog, I really do use my instincts and my intuition in exploring a lot of these ideas and I'm always very gratified when it will begin to manifest itself in the culture or in the media and and there's a lot of examples of that throughout the history of the blog be aware that there there is a track record that, you know on the blog that 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 people will comment on you know long time readers have have seen these sort of things play out in the past and uh Take it for what it's worth. You know, if people disagree with me, I'm I'm totally fine with that. I, I I'm really past the point of arguing about these issues.
2: Exactly, yeah. You know? Well, you know, as we discussed off air, I I'm cheering for the apocalypse, so
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well not necessarily, but I I I you know, maybe a a, a, a rapid paradigm shift might be uh you know, I mean we are The world is in in such a – I really don't like to bring a lot of this into the blog because I don't think it's the – you know, my blog as it stands is not really the appropriate forum for it, but I am I am so extremely concerned about everything that's going on right now. You know, people talk about sustainability, and I just see everything as being unsustainable. I'm just – I'm so existentially worried about all of our institutions, all of our arrangements, You know everything to me seems fragile and frail to be perfectly honest and uh, you know I mean maybe that's just part of the natural evolution maybe that is the precondition that we need to reach before we get into a new revelation you know a a paradigm shift you know a major paradigm shift I mean there are a lot of people out there who are trying to sort of push this whole idea you know the 2012 and the paradigm shift and everything like that I mean I may not necessarily buy into that but I would certainly like to because I mean we're in trouble every the entire world is in serious trouble and uh, a lot of it has to do with that we got used to a certain way of life and a certain way of doing business uh, after the second world war and we haven't realized uh, yet that that no longer applies to our present reality Uh, you know it's unsustainable with our current world population um, you can't have everybody living like uh 50 suburbanites all over the world because the, you know the, the just the basic uh, just the water tables won't won't support that. So uh yeah, we'll uh we'll see how it goes, but uh <laughs> I, I think good. that if there's any time, you know, if 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 anybody's waiting in the wings to uh make their appearance,
2: you know,
0: we're we're getting near the, the 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 opportune time for us as a species certainly.
2: Uh, although I'm I'm channeling Dana Carvey here now as the church lady. What if it's Satan, dude? Could be Satan.
0: <laughs> well, then we're screwed.
2: I know. I know. Well, you well, know, listen, then I, I get my I left, apocalyptic wish.
0: Yeah, I left behind. That. I I had a I had a you know, fairly standard uh, conservative religious upbringing. You know, not fundamentalist, uh, but conservative. You know, we we had to learn our Bible. We had to be able to. You know, write our statements of faith out at a young age and we had to be able to debate the Bible and all these other sort of oh, things. Oh wow. Yeah, I went to a church where, you know, it was, it was pretty heavy duty. Uh, but I, you know, I left, I left that behind in my life, uh, in, in a lot of ways and, you know, certainly the cosmology. Uh, but I know a lot of people out there still, uh, subscribe to it. And even though it's sort of mutated, you know, we have the sort of New Age apocalyptism now. and Oh, yeah. UFO apocalypticism. <laughs> you can tell my, my mouth is getting tired after talking for so long because I'm starting to mispronounce my words. But um, <laughs> You're doing
2: fine, dude. You're doing great.
0: I'll tell you something. The last time I felt like this was uh, like the August before 9-11. I remember feeling very similar to the way I feel now.
2: You're going to freak people out here, man.
0: <laughs>
2: well, you, you sent me some notes here, and uh, you know we've gone a long time, so we're not going to be able to get to all of them. But one of them is uh, long-running obsessions, memes in art leaving myth, mythic realms and crossing over to consensus reality. And uh, we already talked about Jack Kirby, so we can, we don't have to deal with that. But the the next one on there is The Siren, and you put Elizabeth Fraser slash Jeff Buckley, archetypes of mermaids – sirens playing out in real life. What's, what's this all about?
0: Yeah, this is, I'll tell you, this is when I I told you about those intuitions that I get that turn out to be correct. Um, there was this group uh, called the Cocteau Twins, popular sort of post-punk alternative band in the early 80s that I was a big fan of. And I always had a feeling that there was something extremely alien about the singer. Um, she sang in this alien language. She did not... Th- in any recognizable language uh, she had very strange appearance um, and the music just really struck me on a very deep level but at some point in time I saw uh, an episode of 120 Minutes, this old show on MTV, and Jeff Buckley was hosting it, and he just played a Cocko Twins video, and he's like, "Oh, I was really glad that I, I played that," and that was the end of it. And something just clicked. I somehow I just understood something. I intuited something, and then it eventually came out that they were friends. You know that. that the singer; these two singers were friends, and then I was like, "No, no, no!" There's something more here, and it's something that I kept digging at. And and like I told you, how a lot of comics fans didn't appreciate how I was sort of digging at the roots of the superheroes. Same thing happened. A lot of you know, I'd go on these Cocteau Twins boards and start talking about this stuff. And people were like, "Oh, you're crazy! You don't know what you're talking about! You know, mind your own business, blah blah blah." And then there's this Jeff Buckley documentary produced by the BBC, and there's Elizabeth Frazier, you know, basically confessing everything that I intuitively sensed for ten years.
2: What was that? That,
0: she- that that they had this very you know intense relationship, and that um her his death his death by drowning affected her very deeply, and that probably had to do with you know her retirement essentially from the music business. And it you know it was very obvious when you watch this um this video. But this whole relationship really took on this incredible you know these mythic realms um the documentary he he drowned in the Mississippi River right beneath the Memphis pyramid. Uh, and, oh, weird! Yes, and the, the people who went to the, the the site of his death, you know, his friends and his he said it was like going to the River Styx. You know, there's this giant pyramid, and you know, it's one of these periods in time when the mythic realm crosses over into the consensus reality realm. That these two were brought together because his father, who also died early, had sung this tune called "Song to the Siren" that she had covered and had this huge hit of, and this the song's been in a bunch of movies, most recently in the Lovely Bones, the new Peter Jackson movie, and I did a big post on that. So discussing the blog is very difficult because you you, you need to see the visuals, you need to see how this all plays out. But basically, what it is is that. It's almost like this ancient Greek myth playing out in in real time, but there are all these very strange alien memes and psychic memes and all these sort of things embedding themselves into this story. And, And this is really part of my obsession, because a lot of people will dismiss all this stuff as, you know, that whole argument that this is all, you know, brainwash and Masonic Whatever, you know magic and sorcery and all this kind of stuff and the argument I'm trying to make to people is that you know Maybe a lot of that over there is but what I'm talking about here is how these very deep Psychic realms manifest themselves in our realm. Yeah, and and that is something you know Maybe John Keel would understand that (laughs) certainly Jung would understand that but these things happen and uh, most you know we also uh, talked on the blog a lot about Heath Ledger and then and, and, uh, his connection to, uh, you know, another one of my long run obsessions, another another band, another English post-punk band, Killing Joke, that he basically stole his look for the for the Dark Knight movie from a Killing Joke video. Huh. You know, the makeup and the whole thing and the hair, you know, came from this video. And, and this is something we looked a lot on the blog. And then he dies. And the thing that struck me as very strange about this is that this band, Killing Joke, has a death count of people who have had accidental and overdoses and and these kind of experiences that who have fell afoul of this group. Now, I'm not saying this is in any way intentional on their part. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm just saying, again, these forces that sort of manifest themselves in our reality can sometimes bite, you know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) At least when that's when they get our attention is, is, is when they bite. So these have been, you know, series of posts of blog postings on the Secret Sun that that people have, you know, certainly the readership has been part of this. Uh, Most recently when I discussed, you know, I brought up the whole idea of the siren, this archetype, this powerful, powerful archetype. Uh, in, in conjunction to The Lovely Bones. I mean, people really tuned into that. I got a lot of feedback on that. That was really fantastic, the new Peter Jackson movie. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that this stuff all tends to sort of tie back to the same roots because the siren, the mermaid, ties back to the Syrians, the serious mystery, Oanis, you know, that whole constellation of, of ancient astronauts and Robert Temple's book. And uh it's funny because all these – obsessions that I had for so long that all seem so disconnected and disparate and vague, the blog has really allowed me to spell them out and develop them and do so with an audience. So that puts me on my my P's and Q's, you know, that, that makes sure that I'm, I'm people who might not even necessarily be familiar with these ideas or these songs or these movies or what have you, I have to make sure that, that I walk them through that, that I remediate them through this process. So when once I get to that, that revelation, that epiphany, part that they're with me they've come with me even though they necessarily have started in the same place exactly and that's what the blog has really allowed me to do in a lot of ways and it's been in such an incredible eye-opener to me because the other uh, meme that i've been uh, exploring is the whole idea of um your dmt uh hallucinogens and theogens and their connection to these alien realities uh, and and what this started out on the blog out as and this Is back in the early days is that I short I shared the story that I would have these um, very uh, Powerful hallucinations when I was young because I was very sick and I'd, I had these extremely high temperatures and and during one of these experiences I woke up and there was a A thunderstorm going on in my dining room and then there was a leprechaun sitting on a rock in front of me in the living room yeah it was just like a really intense vivid um hallucination but then it turns out that that hallucination that i experienced that there's a whole you know there's a whole lore behind this There, there are people who have had you know very remarkably similar hallucinations and you know what is in our brains what what commonality is in our brains that is is being tapped into you start to talk about the collective unconscious but i'm starting to see that even more explicitly that that our brains are somehow biocomputers that have been programmed with software that's encoded into our dna and this is you know really esoteric stuff (laughs) but you know i'm just following the evidence as as i find it and uh that's been a series called um Alien Dreaming and The Widening Gyre. And it sort of just started off looking at, uh, the film Altered States and its connection to this TV show Fringe and to the X-Files. And this whole concept that we see in Fringe now, which is really amazing of, of that, you know, we can access alternate realities through, maybe through certain chemicals or certain states of consciousness. And, and then we're seeing that a lot in in, in that in that series which is really exciting to me so I mean this stuff gets really esoteric I mean it's 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 sort of almost uh, like master class stuff that I'm trying to <laughs> puzzle my you know just sort of blunder my way through but uh, luckily there's a lot of people out there who are tuned into that and can sort of help me in that process but uh, yeah I mean, I'm always afraid that the blog will become so esoteric and so out there that it will become inaccessible.
2: And, and that's something that I always have to control, always have to keep my eye on. One recurring sort of thing you got working on over there is the Stairway to Sirius uh, series. So I guess just talk about that because it is one of the big uh, pieces, I guess, of Secret Sun.
0: Yes. Um, it all started with a very trivial observation. I was looking at the um campaign logos of uh, Barack Obama and John McCain and noticed that if you put them together you would have this the hieroglyph for Sirius which is the dome the pyramidion or the obelisk and the five-pointed star. Um Obama's logo had the dome, you know, and that st- and those steps, mm-hmm. the the steps of the flag that could be interpreted as steps and that just started me off on this tangent where it was just like one discovery after another, all having to do with this this serious uh stairway to serious arc uh icon I think is the best word for it and and this is in the Masonic tracing board, the first degree tracing board. In, in certain classical masonic traditions is a stairway uh the two columns you know the familiar the usual masonic iconography with the, the floor and all that kind of stuff but there's this stairway leading up to this the blazing star of sirius and these angelic beings coming down from it and i said wow you know what that is that's ancient astronauts right there you know coming yeah. from the, the star sirius and then you understand that there's this whole lore and that this is where you start to see Tying back to this whole shift in the occult underground from the ascended masters to aliens, and this happened—you know, Alice, Alice Bailey is a good example of this because she had the, uh, the the Great White Lodge on Sirius. Um, there are certain—it's—it's it's open to interpretation that 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 Crowley uh, might have had some inclination of that. You know, he had the uh, the he had the Sirius uh, symbolism in the uh, the AA. The uh, Silver Star Organization There's also, you know, very well known to a lot of your listeners probably the the whole uh, Amalanto working and and Lam, which Mm -hmm. is the character who looks like a gray. So I think at the same point in time that the pulp culture that we discussed was shifting towards aliens and and extraterrestrial reality or maybe even interdimensional reality, the same thing was happening in some very esoteric. Uh, cult groups. Now, of course, the question is, we tied that from, you know, we, we took the steps from pop culture to more serious involvement in esotericism and occultism, and then how does that manifest itself in politics and the government and the real world? And that's really where the stairway to serious, serious kind of took me. And then what happened is that, you know, I was looking at um, the World Financial Center in Manhattan. Which no one ever paid attention to when the World Trade Center was there, but then, you know, you see that the the Stairway to Sirius is encoded into those buildings, and then then that building lines up directly with the Monolith Hotel right across the uh, the pit there, the Monolith Hotel, um, which was based on the Monolith in 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is a, a very creepy uh, coincidence, quote unquote. <laughs> You know, so I was writing about all this stuff, but then Obama starts talking about the dog, you know, he's gotta get a dog for his kids, that's the first thing he's gotta do, and the dog's gotta have star quality, and the dog's gotta be a major issue, you know, Canis Major, the star, Sirius, you know, again, maybe people would sort of see this as little bit more open to interpretation than I would, but when you follow the steps you're like, Oh my god, I can't believe I'm watching this unfold in front of me in the media and that's you know, that's basically how I've been feeling for the past year at least. Because uh when you understand you know, the symbols I think there are a lot of symbols, and I will say this, you know, quite directly. I think there are a lot. There's, there is so much symbolism being thrown out, occult, esoteric symbolism being in the, in thrown out in the media. I think a lot of it is just diversion. It's a diversionary tactic, you know. Get people all worried about, you know, Snoop Dogg or Jay Z or whatever. You know, like with, you know, Lady Gaga. I think is it's this intentional provocation, you know, with the, some of the symbolism that we're seeing attached to her. It's, I, and I, I really do think that it's it's a diversionary tactic, you know. Get people involved in that whole retro occult kind of genre. Again, getting back to what we talked about with the, the Royal Society, and you know, that divert people with all this old school kind of occultism and supernaturalism. But what's really happening is happening above our heads. And again a lot of people will disagree with that but that's just you know sort of the assumption that I've been working on and I've been you know it's been pretty fruitful yeah. as far as results See, so to speak does that did any of that make sense
2: that made perfect sense yeah so just to sort of put a bone on it what do you what, I guess what do you think this all this serious stuff means that there's some kind of a, something attached to serious that that is going to become important down the line, you know, aliens or whatever?
0: I'm not saying that that is the case, but I'm saying that I, I do believe that there are certain influential individuals who do believe that, yes. Okay. And I I don't think it's just a question of, you know, these marginal occult or esoteric groups. I think it's much more compelling than that. And that's what really put me on to, you know, back into the whole ancient astronaut and alien thing into, into the first place because – The kind of people who gravitate towards esotericism, that's a certain personality type. The kind of people who gravitate towards power and influence is a completely different personality type, Yeah, and they have much different motivations, they have much different things that excite them, that compel them, and what compels them is more power, real tangible power that they can accumulate. Not mysticism you know not sort of hazy uncertain speculative stuff exactly no what they're concerned about is where the rubber meets the road yeah and i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that you know and maybe what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to convince people that if these people are playing around with this sort of imagery they think that there's something very real and very tangible and very compelling behind that, not open to interpretation. There's always been sort of that idea that
2: power brokers know more about what's going on than we think, and the whole idea about NASA and launching their missions and stuff to coincide with astrological events and, and things like of that nature.
0: Well, that's that's beyond argument. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not acknowledged, but that is fact. And the thing that's just made me laugh when I was reading some of the uh, – Information coming out of the Royal Society thing is, you know, guys, uh, scientists saying, "Well, maybe if we're looking for aliens, we should look for, you know, artifacts on the moon or in Mars." And I'm thinking, <laughs> it's "Like, where you been? Where you been? Yeah, exactly." You know, um, uh, listen, I could be totally wrong. I could be totally wrong about everything that I write about. I really could be. And and listen, I'm not even I'm not going to fight about it. I'm not interested in arguing or fighting with people because I'm. Following you know the tune of my own drummer, and I'm I'm usually pleased with where my drummer leads me But what I'm trying to say Is that if people who are in positions of power are starting to screw around with this kind of stuff that weirdos like you And I have been doing for years There's a much more compelling reason behind that than just speculation
2: Right. They wouldn't waste their time on it unless there was something to it that they could use. Because there are certainly
0: more pressing problems in the world right now.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) You know,
0: even within their own, you know, their own power bases are being threatened. Their own, everything is is up for grabs right now. So I think that we are closer now to some earth-shaking new reality than we've ever been. But that does not necessarily mean that we're, you know, at its doorstep yet.
2: Yeah. I wish we were, though.
0: Well, we'll see. You know, we will see. You know, one thing that I would advise people is going back to the old X-Files, Max, and trust no one. Question everything, really. And I seriously mean that. You know, question everything that I write about. You know, uh, do not take anything for granted. Do not take anything on faith. I think that we're uh, entering a very dangerous time in a lot of ways and that it's very important for people to be extremely um skeptical and do not take things on faith. I think we could see a tremendous amount of manipulation on these issues that, you know, we've been sort of having you know, we've had our own little playground, you know, for so many years with all these kind of things, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, if the big boys start coming onto the playground, uh, they're gonna have their own ideas. So, uh, I think that people need to be very more than ever, more you know, very vigilant about what they choose to believe.
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, those of us in esoterica, we already kind of are. It's the mainstream people that are just kind of, you know, the lemmings and uh, the sheeple, as a lot of people uh, derisively call them, you know. They're so far gone that, <laughs> you know.
0: But, you know, see, here's the problem, though. It's very easy to replace... Uh, mainstream belief system with a with a prefabricated, prearranged alternative belief system, and you know we see this a lot. You know, we see the pied pipers who who have their own agendas, but they're like they they pretend to play at the you know the rebel, pretend to play at the liberator. You know, you see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think there's a certain quality, there's a certain inclination in in, in people to want the easy answers, to want to just follow. Somebody who's going to give us those easy answers, and I, I don't think that this is the time for that And of course most of this is going to fall on deaf ears The people that I'm speaking to or I'm preaching to the choir exactly here. but you know There are people in their circles in their lives their Facebook friends Whatever who are going to want to just jump on whatever bandwagon sort of rolls into town And I think that that's something now more than ever Is something that we have to be very, very careful of You know, to me, when Again, at the same point in time That all this Kind of information has Started to manifest itself Outside of our circles, so to speak That makes Things a lot more Precarious in some ways, I think
2: Yeah, it's pointless really To ask where you think this is all headed, because we've kind of Gone over, we've, we've sort of like Circled the wagon around that several times Here, we just don't know what's going on Happen here, but it seems like we're on. But the, it's
0: going on, I'll tell you. Yeah, something's. <laughs> going. <laughs>
2: I'm going to jump around a little bit here. The first one I wanted to ask you about is uh, something you say in one of the posts, and that's that uh, 17 is a number I've been talking about since the earliest days of this blog, and I still have no clue what the real meaning behind it is. Now I've heard a lot of. Uh, you know, esoteric connections to a lot of different numbers, but 17 is a new one for me. So, talk a little bit about this 17 meme, for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah, it's just something that when I was doing my private work, I just it just kept popping up, and you know, it just seemed like a curiosity until I read this book called Egyptian Religion by, you know, by Budge, Sir Wallace Budge, and he talked about how the death of Osiris was the third month, the 17th day. And of course, we celebrate, you know, our Green Man Festival on the third month and the seventh day, which is St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. And basically, you know, I talked about St. Patrick's Day and it's sort of Masonic, uh, origins and, and, you know, how the origin of the holiday really has nothing to do with what we think it has to do with. It, it has a whole different, uh, background and, Meaning to it as well, and every time it pops up in the news, which it does a lot in, in a lot of different contexts, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll usually post something about it. Again, started off as just a curiosity, and the other thing too was that gold coin that came out in 2000. Do you remember that?
2: Was that the Sacagawea? Yeah, okay. I'm
0: glad. I'm glad you tried to pronounce that. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I, I remember seeing that it had 17 stars on it. Which I thought was really, was really curious. Um, but anyway, I mean, I've got 120 posts, uh, 17 oriented posts on the blog. Wow. And it's just basically something that you have to see. You know, sort of what Anton Wilson did with, uh, with 23, I've been doing with 17. And it's, it's, it's an enigma, you know. It, 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 it truly is. Um, yeah, it's And a lot of people will contribute it. I mean, I've, I get a lot of interesting, you know, my little, my little gremlins, uh, my spies, uh, combing the media for 17 mentions, and you'll just see it a lot. But it was also with, with, a, when Obama came in, he kept giving like these 17 minute long speeches. And there was all these sort of 17 connotations with Obama, and then, you know, again, when you go to the blog and just type in Obama in 17, you'll see a whole, you'll see all of it. It's kind of, you know, it's funny with the way the blog is structured, I'll start off with just a germ of an idea and these posts will just grow and grow and grow. And it's, it's really something that, you know, it's like, uh, what's what's the term, you know, dancing about architecture. I mean, it's, it's something that you, you really have to see the way it unfolds because it's so visual. It's, it's very visually oriented. And I think my, my training as an artist sort of gives me a little bit of a, of an advantage because, you know, I'm trained to really scrutinize imagery and, 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 break it down and, and understand how it's constructed and, and, and composed. And, and, and that's plays in a lot with what I'm doing. It's just, you know, having this eye, you know, that this trained eye for, for detail and, uh, pictorial construction.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's another thing, uh, that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, for sure. The blog is very visually oriented and, uh, I can kind of see the enterprise mission influence too there with, with that kind of stylings, uh, with the structure of the post. So it's, uh, it's a cool blog. I really enjoy it quite a bit.
0: Well, what, because what, what those guys did on the Enterprise mission that just really just blew me away is that they just... They showed how all these, these mythic themes were, were being processed. And I, I think a lot of people don't really give you know them their due. I mean, Ho- Hoagland in a lot of ways is a whipping boy for a lot of different people. Yeah. But uh, I think he's done a lot of very interesting work. And to me, you know, personally, when I think of Holland, I think of those enterprise mission posts. And you just, you know, when you'd show you all this geometric symbolism and all this stuff sort of playing over and over again. And, uh, and then I sort of combine that with, you know, my artistic and my creative background. You know, I mean, he he's coming at it from more like, you know, a left brain and I'm coming at it more from a right brain. Yeah. Uh, POV.
2: You bring up sort of an interesting idea that kind of came up when I was doing an interview with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman last year about um, these ancient religious sects and secret societies and stuff. And Well, I recently kind of wondered uh, if, you know, maybe their ancient secrets and stuff either are lost or they're not so much secrets anymore. Sort of like, you know, I can't make – for an example, like let's say, you know, the structure of DNA or something. Maybe they knew that a long time ago and now we know it. Everybody knows it. So it sort of like brings up an interesting idea that are there still secrets that are known to these people who are in these secret societies? And, and, you know, I'm talking about the people at the top and stuff, not your everyday average Freemason and stuff like that. Or were the secrets, you know, stuff that is common knowledge now, like, you know, geometry and that kind of stuff?
0: Well, DNA is the perfect example because... <clears throat> That's something I've been looking at a lot on the blog is, is these representations of the double helix, you know, from very, very early on, yeah. you know, Sumer, um, you know, the, the Caduceus, um, the hieroglyph for Fatah, the the creator god, you know, the the, the, the basically the mason god of, of of ancient Egypt, you know, he's got a double helix, you know, where did that come from? Why do we see this connotation? You know, of gods related to, to medicine and biology, you know, with that double helix or with bloodlines, you know, all these very strange and anomalous, uh, you know, associations with this imagery, you know, and I think I'll tell you something. I just get this feeling, you know, with the study of like the alignments of the pyramids or the alignments of, uh, you know, the Mexican pyramids and, you know, the, the, whole, the whole idea of the city of the sun and, and the, the orbits of the planets being encoded. I mean, this is how we're really going to sort of crack these mysteries. And I think in a lot of ways uh, there are people who are ahead of the curve on us, and I don't think they're really, you know, they're telling us the whole story. But it's sort of being encoded, you know, particularly in architectural symbolism. The thing that really struck me and sort of opened everything up for me was during the election when I saw the you know the the primal components of the hieroglyph for Sirius being split up and incorporated into the Obama and McCain campaign logos. Yeah. You know the, the the pyramidion and the dome and the five pointed star, and I just that really just slapped me in the face the first minute I saw it because I just I've been studying that for for a long time this whole this uh, serious, uh, the veneration of serious and how that's, you know, seeped into these esoteric cults and secret societies. But the thing is, is that I think a lot of them, just they don't understand it. And that's what I wrote about in, in one of my major posts uh, dealing with the, the election, is that when you read an Alice Bailey book or a uh Albert Pike's morals and dogmas, you know, or I should say, when you try to read it, I mean, it's just,
1: it's,
0: it's just, you don't know what they're talking about. It's, just it, and I'm not sure that they know what they're talking about. It's just like it's impossible to to parse. And I think what I've been trying to do, and you know, rightly or wrongly, is just, you know, what are the what are the basic components here? And I recently did uh, a post on the dome and the obelisk, and comparing it to the cargo cults. So, you know, if you there's some interesting documentaries on the cargo cults yeah. out there, and, and the cargo cults was the original impetus for chariots of the gods. This is where you know Van Donenken, uh started, you know, working on the the whole thesis that he published in, in Chariots and all the other books, is that he watched uh, or he either watched or read about the cargo cults and how they would venerate these bush pilots, you know, these, these bush pilots who would sort of, you know, bring these these native tribes who had never seen an airplane, never seen electricity, anything like that. They had no concept of it. They had no context for it, um, that how they would venerate it, you know, and, and some of these cults exist to this day, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And, and when I look at it, and I've been, you know, I mean, my wife and I were just total sci-fi buffs. We're constantly just watching Doctor Who and Star Trek and all the rest of it. And I was reading, you know, one of these posts about the dome and the obelisk and, and, uh, and Freemasonry and all this stuff, and I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. I mean, I, I admit that, you know, I have sort of a... Almost like an impediment when it comes to occultism because I, I just, my mind doesn't work that way. I, you know, I've tried to read some of these texts and I, I don't understand. You know, it seems, it reminds me of, of, of like real hardcore comics fans that everything is in universe is the name of the term, that everything sort of is self, self referential. And that's what I think has sort of happened with, uh, some, some occultism because we we lost what the original meaning of of these icons or these uh, you know these ideas were. Yeah. And I just keep coming back, you know, and it's so funny because it's like I said, I mean, I was not processing any of this when I started the blog, but I just started saying, wow, you know, I mean, there it is, the the beam coming down from heaven, or or you know these icons that just could have these very simple meanings. And really the key was that first-degree Masonic uh, uh, tracing board, where it's this giant staircase coming from uh, the star Sirius, leading to the star Sirius, and these angelic beings coming down, bringing all this knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And there's your basic A A T thesis right there, yeah. you know, that the, the space gods come from the stars, you know, this is something that I was really into, like I said, like 15 years ago, and then I just, I stopped thinking about it, but when I started looking at this, in the strangest place, you know, this uh, occultism, which it seemed like would be more magical based, be more maybe spiritual based, and just seeing these ideas bleed into it, and I think, where did that come from, why is that there, and that just sort of opened everything up. And that's basically what I've been sort of pursuing on
2: the blog. Last night's Etsy of Scratchy was, without a doubt, the worst episode ever. Rest assured that I was on the internet within minutes, registering my disgust throughout the world. Hey, I know it wasn't great, but what right do you have to complain? As a loyal viewer, I feel they owe me. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. They're giving you thousands of hours of entertainment for free. What could they possibly owe you? I mean, if anything, you owe them. Worst episode ever. Now, do you think to sort of throw this back to something we talked about earlier with the comics, do you think this is something that's intentionally done, or is it just that the occult become such a prevalent thing in, in a way it's sort of just influential? Do you know what I mean? In, in design, I, I, it though?
0: could be both, you know? I mean, it could be all of the above, you know? But I think there are a lot of people who sort of intuit. That there was some there's some deeper meaning behind all this stuff because otherwise you know why would people be so concerned about it I mean my interest has always been in in what you saw in Spandex was just the history of it you know yeah. what I mean the history of how these ideas bleed into the um, into the mainstream you know the actual writings like I would read uh, a biography of Aleister Crowley but I would never read anything he wrote on 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 ritual magic because it doesn't make any sense to me. And people might attack me for that. Um, but it, it just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I could say that about a whole, a whole number of topics because I think that the original idea was somehow lost. And, and then what happens is that the creative mind embellishes it. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened with the cargo cults. So they would see these planes. They had no context of what they were. They had no idea of what they were. And they saw them as these giant spirit birds, you know, that, that they were sent by the ancestors, you know. And that to me seems like such a, a powerful, but subversive explanation for maybe what's at the core of a lot of religion or a lot of, you know, like I said, this sort of esoteric occult sort of realm. Maybe, you know, magic and spiritualism and all these kind of things were really passed down to us by people who had experience with incredibly advanced technology that they could have no possible context for you know it's the whole idea of that uh oh well we've seen ufos uh people thought they were fairies or whatever but maybe they thought they were fairies or leprechauns or whatever whatever you want to call them because they had no context for for what a ufo would be what a spaceship would be or not even necessarily spaceship because you know to be honest with you i'm not even sure that ufos are actually extraterrestrial as we would understand them yeah. you know if in fact they exist i to me uh the ultra-terrestrial explanation makes a lot more sense to me the distances uh are just you know in the science fiction story you know in star trek they can just jet from one galaxy to another but you know i mean when you think of the immense distances between stars it's it's pretty uh it's pretty overwhelming uh, and maybe what we see, we now see as aliens or, or ancient astronauts were, were actually, well, maybe they were astronauts, but maybe from, you know, from Mars and Venus before they were rendered uninhabitable. You know, I mean, I, I'm only interested in questions, you know what I'm saying? And I think it's very important, increasingly important, to put a question mark on a lot of these issues because you're going to be increasingly put under fire by asking uncomfortable questions about these issues, and I'll tell you why. Because as, as our understanding of technology increases, all of a sudden everything that Von Doniken was talking about 40 years ago doesn't seem completely hypothetical. You know, uh, genetic engineering is now a reality. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Changing, you know, recombining genes – is, is now a reality uh, you know again like what we said about the cargo cults that we've seen that we have we have an example for that and the other thing too is these megalithic structures how did they move these stones there's no credible explanation for how you move a 200 ton or 2,000 ton stone in the in, in the in the case of, of Baalbek uh, you know I mean they try to explain these things away, but I, I sense that there's an increasing desperation on the part of orthodox science to explain some of these issues away, and particularly uh, with human beings themselves. And I'm going to tell you how I came to all this. I've always had major health problems, you know, throughout my entire childhood, throughout my life, you know, um, and a lot of them will be exacerbated by my environment you know what i mean allergies things like that um humidity really bothers i have chronic pain issues so humidity is my enemy so it sort of got me started on this whole idea of how human beings in general are not very well suited to this environment to this biosphere and how we have this general uh overwhelming issue of maladaptivity that every other species on this planet can naturally adapt to the environment except for us we are such an anomaly of all the tens and hundreds of thousands of species on this planet we stand out you understand what i'm saying Uh and this is something with the rise of science and, and and space exploration i mean all these things that were just considered beyond the pale when people like Eric von Donekin and people even before him, Charles Fort is a great example. I mean, he was writing about this, you know, almost a hundred years ago now. Uh, these, these questions are going to be a source of increasing anxiety for orthodox science to explain away. And I think the best, you know, <laughs> the best way to do it is not to make definitive statements about them until you know we have all the evidence and you know we may well ha- you know at some point in time have a com- co- compelling uh, argument that challenges you know both scientific and religious orthodoxy Francis Crick the man who discovered DNA said unequivocally that DNA was brought here by aliens sure. in, a, in a vehicle okay now this is something that orthodox science doesn't want to Necessarily acknowledge, but one of the big posts I had recently, I think, I think it was before Christmas, was Richard Dawkins, arch skeptic, arch atheist, arch whatever, you know, Mr. Science himself saying it is possible, it is within the realm of possibility that DNA was brought here to this planet and seeded here by another race. He said that that, you know, he was very, you know, he qualified his statement, but he said that that is not out of the realm of possibility, you know. This is something, you know, this edifice is crumbling. And the whole idea of advanced space travel, uh, you know, the whole thing with uh, what's going on in CERN, with all these, like, super advanced scientific projects, all of a sudden, everything that was science fiction is not science fiction. It's reality. And that is going to change our understanding of ourselves. And, you know, maybe people who are, a little bit ahead of the curve, for instance, Jack Kirby, who we discussed earlier, were seen as weirdos, we're seen as outcasts, we're seen, you know, as just flakes, maybe people are going to go back and and, and look and say, well, maybe they weren't right on all the details, but maybe they were on the basics. And that's basically sort of the animated spirit uh, uh, on the blog is how both through intentional and deliberate um, messages and symbolism and whatnot, and also a, a more subtle and unconscious process. Because when you're talking about intentional and unintentional, a, a lot of times you're talking about, or essentially you're talking about, consciously and unconsciously. Yeah. And I'm not sure if there's a clear demarcation between unconscious and conscious. And the reason being is that I, you know, I have experience as as a creative, as a creative writer. Uh, you know, as a cartoonist and all these kind of things, well like you can't force ideas to come. They have to come with you. And also more importantly, I spent a lot of time as a musician. And music is the ultimate mystery because, you know, you can write you can sit down and write a really bad song. You cannot sit down and write a great song. This great song has to come to you. Exactly. So good yeah. music comes to you. And and I would say the same thing is true with across the board. You know, the great ideas we are re- we are receiving. Are we receiving them from the unconscious mind? You know, I mean, I'm increasingly asking questions of, of whether there are other influences. You know, there are other more subtle energies or powers that are, are informing our Unconscious thought process.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's some deep stuff, but
0: you know, people putting out a lot of malevolent, and this is, I mean, this is something that is nothing new, but people putting out a lot of dark, malevolent symbolism and and messages and things like that. And you know, the argument that I'm uh, I've been making on the blog is like, just don't play that. You know, homie, don't play that. Just turn that stuff off. You know, it's (laughs) like get that out of your head, because what they're trying to do. By manipulating you with this negative imagery is that they're trying to control your thought process. Yeah. You know, and whether or not you, you say, oh, that's great or that's bad, it doesn't matter because you're, 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 you're still in a reaction mode. I'm talking about being proactive, not reactive. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, I, and again, I'll, I'll take a lot of heat for that, but it's something that I feel really, you know, very strongly about that, you know, we really have to start to wonder what is just being put out there just to distract us. A lot of this is the the benefit of of sort of having maybe a few more years under my belt when it comes to these kind of topics, because I've seen a lot of crazes and fads and all these kind of things just sort of uh, wax and wane. And the one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, when, when people are trying to press your buttons and you let them. You might think that you're engaged in some great struggle, but really, what you're going to turn around at the end of the day and discover is that you were just letting somebody press your buttons.
2: Exactly. Yeah. You understand
0: know, what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, and yeah. it's like I, I think you know there are so many real serious problems out there that you know you wonder if some of of uh, you know these things are just uh, distractions, just intentionally planted to, to, to take our minds off the real issues, you know, and then again it becomes a question of an argument really of what the real issues are, and it's up to really every individual to decide what is most important to you and what you feel that by pursuing and immersing yourself in that you will make the best contribution for, and one thing that I said on my blog yesterday and I will say to your listeners right now is that you know synchronicity is a very powerful guide. And I recommend that everybody, whether it's on your computer or in a pad of paper, anytime a synchronicity crosses your path, record it. You know, write it down. Because I'll tell you something, everything that I'm doing now and – you know, even our guards were spandex. I'll tell you, a great synchronicity with our guards were spandex. The editor who bought that book is from Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And <laughs> she remembers the whole Mothman thing. She was a little girl when that thing was all going down. <laughs> you know? And it's, and I, I actually put up a, a post on this. Of, uh, it's called Mothman and Me. You know, I, I, all these weird synchronistic connections I had to the Mothman, and that's one of them. And that's, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, it's, uh, you know, people will, it's part of the process. It's part of the discovery process, synchronicity. Very important. I mean, you know, very important in my work. And, you know, you can't necessarily use it as a proof in an argument, but it might lead you to that proof. Do you know yeah, what saying? Totally. Mean? It might be the signpost. It might not be your victory wagon, but it might be the the signpost on the road. There you go. You, you see what I'm saying? It's a tool, and I, I think it's an extremely important tool. And, and again, that's that comes from my... You know, my study of Jung. Now,
2: what about this water meme you're talking about on the blog? I, I'm interested in uh, what do you make of that.
0: Well, that's something I'm just starting to deal with now. Uh, that whole Copenhagen thing, you remember that? Yeah. Just, you know, about a month ago. Uh, I noticed that the Copenhagen 15 logo was, <laughs> you know, it looks like a water planet. You know, why isn't it green? Why was it blue? Why did it look like undulating waves? Do you, have you seen that?
2: I've seen, yeah, I've seen it.
0: Okay, so if you looked at – if somebody said, okay, Copenhagen 15 is about a water planet, you know, would you have any reason to doubt that? I mean, Copenhagen itself, I mean, the official symbol of Copenhagen is the mermaid. Yeah, You know? And, uh, I mean, this is all something I'm sort of very much at the at the start of the road for, is this, this, this strange uh, – that, that figure from, from ancient mythology, Oannes, who, you know, uh, aka Dagon, the, the water god, you know, who, who would, who lived in the Persian Gulf, and look at how much is going on in the Persian Gulf right now, you know? Yeah. Who lived in the Persian Gulf and would, uh, come out of the water every, every morning and, and teach people how to, you know, grow crops and make buildings and mathematics and all these kind of things, and then go back under the waves, you know, uh, this whole idea, of you know the the, the water people the mer people are it seems to be emanating uh, manifesting itself you know in the culture um, and again back to avatar a lot of people say well avatar almost sort of looks and functions like a water plant you have these floating mountains you know what, what's keeping them up is is this all some sort of metaphor you know, for the water people, the blue people, and all these kind of things, it's all very symbolic, it's all very, uh, kind of hard to pin down, but it seems to be, you know, if you look for it, you'll see a lot of the sort of just weaving in and out of, of the medium that the James Cameron did the Abyss, right? Yeah. And he did Solaris, you know, another water plant, and then he also did Aliens of the Deep. So that's this whole idea of these, uh, these Amphibious or aquatic alien seems to be a, a, a big obsession with him, and uh, you know some people have have noted in the comments that that Avatar could very well be interpreted as as actually you know stand in for for an aquatic planet. You know, people can't breathe the oxygen there. You know, the they need breathing apparatus. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, well, you haven't seen the film, so you don't know what I mean. I'm vaguely familiar with yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've seen the trailers and the ads and stuff. I've seen
2: the story and how you have to, you know, they have to use the things to go to the planet.
0: But this so. all ties back to again to Sirius, this whole idea of, you know, Sirius is the star of the sea. And a lot of um, lore, you know, and that's usually the term I like to use is is lore, you know, that of the mermen and the Syrians. you know that that's that sirens you know, some people believe it's derived from Syrian, you know, from Sirius. Again, I mean, these connections are, can often seem really tenuous in, until they're sort of organized and, and, and put out in front of you. You know, it's, 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 it's a very difficult thing to discuss without the sort of audiovisual age to put it across. But, the, you know, uh, a big thing on the blog – just over a year and a half ago now was the Atlantis ceremony in Dubai. Dubai is something I've been looking at a lot because it's uh it seems like such an improbable science fiction city that doesn't belong on the the face of the planet.
2: Yeah, it's a weird place.
0: But you know, they had that big Atlantis thing and they had the the mermaid priestess come out and, you know, this Giant firework ceremony that could only be seen from space. That was the headline, you know, Dubai ceremony seen from space. Well, who's seeing it in space? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Why well, you know, seeing a lot of these, uh, these big firework displays that are, you know, meant to be seen from space. And, and, and we had the recent with the Burj Dubai, this, this enormous obelisk. Slash rocket ship that they planted in the middle of the city, you know another fi- uh, firework ceremony. That if you're on the ground anywhere in the city, not in the air, not several thousand feet in the air, you can't make heads or tails of. It looks like just a bunch of smoke and flashes. Yeah, and and you know you'll see the the, the video footage that you can't make heads or tails of it. So why are they putting on this, these fireworks displays that can only be seen from space? What is that supposed to mean? You know what I mean? And when you start asking yourself these questions, you know, it can it lead to some very interesting places. <laughs> yeah, that's for
2: sure. Yeah, these kind of bounce around a little bit, so forgive me for that if I miss stuff, or feel free to fill in the blanks on some stuff, too. as we well, go. Well, the along. other
0: point I wanted to make, too, is that, I mean, the superhero archetype has become so pervasive in our culture but it's mutated. I mean, one of the things I've been writing about on the blog is that this whole vampire uh, family archetype that we see, you know, in True Blood and in the Twilight stories and stuff. I mean, these these are not vampires as you know they were understood uh, throughout, you know, human history. Yeah. These are basically superheroes who feed on blood and they they you know they're constantly struggling, you know, to sort of revert to that animal predator uh version of the vampire but the you know the blade is another good example of this you know it's this that these are superheroes who have this sort of strength slash weakness the strength and their weakness is identical it's this thirst for human blood and they they need to find ways to sort of counteract that in twilight they feed on animal blood and in true blood they have this you know japanese blood synthesis but it's re- it's really the same thing i mean it's it's, it's superheroes it's it, again we're going to see more and more of this, and we're going to see more and more of this evolution because, I mean, look at what a mess everything is. Look at how screwed up the economy is. Look at how screwed up politics are. Look at how just completely vulnerable and and. and you know, almost hopeless people are feeling. I mean, they're naturally going to be drawn to this. And Avatar, again, I mean, Avatar is almost like Superman in reverse, isn't it? It's like the alien is us, and we're going to that planet, the the superior planet, to become part of them. You you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That whole idea, I mean, it's it's a really profound shift. I mean, this is something that Cameron has been doing for years now, but I think it's really fascinating that it is a superhero story Uh, You know, Jake Sully is a superhero, but he's, again, he's Superman in reverse. He's coming from Earth, you know, to this alien planet to to achieve that sort of superhero apotheosis.
2: That's interesting. I haven't seen Avatar yet, so don't spoil it for me.
0: Oh, well, I mean, that's just, you (laughs) know, the basic plot of the story. Yeah, I was just, (laughs) I was just. (laughs) You won't be surprised by the story at all. You know, really, the film is not about the story. The film is about the 3D. Oh, it's just like, you know, back in the early 90s, I was really big into like virtual reality and that whole thing. And it's like, it's taken so long for the technology to sort of catch up to the promises that were made. But this is like the closest thing to, you know, the virtual reality that, you know, we saw or, like on the holodeck in Star Trek. Is the 3 really that good? Oh, it's just, I no. mean, you've read these stories that people having like withdrawal symptoms after it. Because like all of a sudden, you know, you're in this this world, this wonder world, and all of a sudden, like you know, the, the film ends, and then you're back in your crappy multiplex at your crappy suburban strip mall. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's such a come down.
2: <laughs> I just don't. I don't. I'm skeptical. I don't like the glasses. and I, I feel like they get kind of. I, I tried to watch one of those TV shows in 3D here uh, a while ago, and it was like gave me a headache, kind of. I'm hoping that uh, that won't be the case with the movie.
0: Just go see it. All you right. know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> just so you can say you saw it, you know?
2: I guess, all right. That's fair enough. Well, I saw District 9, so that's a, that's a start.
0: Well, again, it's the same kind of story, you know, becoming the other. And it's something that, you know, we're seeing a lot. And, it, you know, it's it's speaking to the same, you know, impetus that we see behind the superhero stories. It's like frustration with, with just human weakness, human vulnerability uh, you know, we want to become something stronger, something better. Uh, you know, how this is all going to evolve. I mean, will this ever leave the fictional realm? You know, we, you know, will this sort of filter out into the post-humanist movement? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, that's more talk than, than reality, you know. Uh, but, you know, it certainly could. I mean, it's, it certainly could give people this expectation you know, but because they're so immersed. You know, your reality is what you immerse yourself in. And if you're constantly immersed in these, these 3D, you know, panoramas, you're not going to be able to put up with, you know, coming back to your your crappy ordinary life, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you raised kind of an interesting point. And someone wrote to me, they didn't know I was interviewing you, but I figure that you can speak to this in a, in a way, and I'll, I'll get to it in a sort of roundabout way. They suggested that the disclosure meme that picked up towards the end of 2009 coincided with Avatar intentionally. I don't quite know what to make of that. I don't really necessarily believe that, but um, I guess to bring it back now to to our gods wear spandex, you didn't seem to put across the point or the idea that this was like um some kind of organized education process, you know, at the behest of some nefarious forces, let's say. This sounds like, um, you know, the adoption of the occult and the esoteric by the comic industry and comic writers and stuff was more of an organic sort of thing that came along, uh, you know, because they fueled good stories and because these were the sort of things that interested the people who were making the comics. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all very fringe stuff. I mean, the same kind of fringe weirdos that are going to be into superheroes are going to probably be into occultism and things like that. I don't think that uh, that whole argument that this is all conditioning you know really makes a lot of sense because i mean this has been going on for so long i mean when where's the payoff you know what i'm saying i yeah. mean i've been hearing you know it, i get very frustrated with these kind of arguments and and it's it, it may be because i've been involved in this stuff i've been researching this stuff for so long and i've seen so many of these predictions and theories just like rise and fall and then just a few years later, everybody sort of forgets them. A new generation of people come in, and they sort of pick up this cudgel again. You know, uh, I wrote—I wrote a post about disclosure. Uh, you know, I just—I can't see—I can't see the advantage in disclosure because you know the whole idea behind government is that government sort of uh, exists on this unconscious idea that they are the supreme power that you have to answer to them. You know, they'll put on this nice face, they'll put, you know, make you know, friendly, smiling democracy and all these kind of nonsense th- ideas. But really the, the, the there's a subtle threat there that they are the supreme power, that they have all the money, they have all the power, they have all the force, they have all the cops things like that. Now, if you if you are trying to you know, convince people that that's where your power springs from. It's almost like sort of a, a modern idea of the divine right of kings. And then all of a sudden you acknowledge this more advanced technological power than yourself. That immediately calls your own power into question. You know, exactly. with the advantage in that. You know, it's you know, and that's the thing with 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 disclosure. Is that I've heard it so much. I, you know, you had Greg Bishop and and, and Nick Redfern, and, and they said the same thing. Um, you know, I heard I heard disclosure in the '70s. You know that 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 there was going to be these huge landings in nineteen it was either seventy six or seventy seven and that, that you know everything was this big conditioning with star wars and and uh, close encounters and all these things star trek that this was all part of this big conditioning for this massive disclosure slash landing this kind of idea it never happened i mean it you know this expectation sort of rises and falls you know if there is ever this disclosure i mean it's not going to be the government's idea because it's it's against their or or genuine disclosure let me just say that i mean it's against their their vested interest in maintaining this illusion of of absolute supremacy
2: exactly yeah yeah well i think we're in agreement on that yeah i'm glad we kind of got to the bottom of the i guess you know the driving force behind these occult influences on the comics so people don't Misinterpreted as some kind of, you know, overarching conspiracy, uh, which I don't think is the case.
0: Well, what is it? It's a conspiracy of weirdos who who are drawn to to weird topics, you know, and a, a lot of it has to do with their own personal powers of, or their personal feelings of powerlessness, you know. It feeds into that that they can acquire these these magical powers. You know, the thing with with comic books, comic books, and superheroes have become very popular, but I mean. You're talking about something that's always been, you know, at least since this late 60s, has been incredibly marginal, uh, was really not been the mainstream. I mean, you had things like The Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman, things like this sort of pop up in the 70s, but th- this was not, you know, the, the, the mainstream media. It was more of like a sort of a side thing, you know what I'm saying? In comic yeah. books, I mean, people who were working comic books in the, in the 60s and 70s, you know, they didn't make any money because they were all selling the comics in the newsstand, and they were all getting killed on returns. It wasn't until the direct market came in, and let me just explain what that is. The direct market is, 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 was a system set up where comic specialty stores would order comics directly from the, you know, the, the distributors and would not you know, uh, have a, a return basis. The newsstands, you have to re- if you don't sell a, a copy of a magazine, it gets returned. And uh, you know you you have to pay for the, the you know the shipping and the destruction. I mean, it, comic book publishers was getting killed. It wasn't really until the '80s, but still, you know, you you, you had this sort of growth. Uh, of, of the comics fandom in the '80s, that sort of led to Batman, and then there was a sort of a post-Batman explosion after that, and then, like I said, it died again. You know, it, it's really—I I think it's a more organic process where these uh, memes are sort of adopted by the, you know, the, 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 the audiences at large because it sort of speaks to these psychological needs.
2: Yeah. Now, you talk about in the book how Superman is a metaphor for american jewish assimilation i found that to be just wildly intriguing so i guess talk a little bit about that and additionally you know the whole idea of superman as messiah
0: well that's you know that's not an original concept on my part i mean there's actually been books written about that but what what siegel and schuster did with superman is they took these ideas you know some of which like we said before had sort of a maybe have a bit of a unsavory connotation to them, you know, what we saw in Gladiator and the coming race and things like that. And they created this character who had a dual identity, who was, who was both, you know, the nerd, the outcast, but also his, you know, his secret identity, his true identity was this great alien Messiah who, who, you know, was saving people on a daily basis from crime and, 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 and danger. And it, you know, it's very interesting, too, because Superman in his original incarnation was a very populist character. You know, fighting for the little guy, fighting against, you know, the landlords and the corrupt politicians and the arms dealers and stuff. And it sort of tapped into this whole uh, urban populism uh, that that you saw during the Depression. Um, you know, as far as the the Jewish assimilation, uh, assimilation you know, you, he was basically his origin story as Moses, you know, coming... Uh, you know, in the Reed boat, except for it's a spaceship, you know, down the Nile, except for it's, you know, the Milky Way, you know, uh, to this family in Kansas, you know, the Kents who sort of take him in and sort of, you know, some, some writers have seen that as a, as, as a metaphor for, uh, you know, the Jewish immigration of the of the early 20th century, late 19th century, that whole process. Yeah. Again, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, some, some really good books have written about it, have been written about it. Um, but the messiah thing again that's a very uh universal concept that goes back you know way before the time of Christ uh the, you know the superhero i mean it's almost a, to me it's almost a, it's a cliche you know if you if you're not part of uh, the comic book sub sub genre the subculture uh it, it it might seem novel but it's 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 really part of the dna it's it's part of the lifeblood of these characters that this You know, this, this need to me, you know, again, it, it almost speaks to this need for either a father figure or a big brother figure. You know what I mean? And for a a bullied young boy, uh, like Siegel and Schuster, (laughs) you know, who, who were thought to be weirdos and, and outcasts, uh, by, you know, their, their neighbors and their friends and everything like that. And it's like, well, I'll show you. I'm, you know, I'm going to save you. It's, it's, you know, very primal.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. You really dig to the core of a lot of this stuff, which I found interesting. Um, and we're sort of mixing in here, not just the esoteric undercurrents of these characters and stuff, but also some of the history of uh, the comic industry, like I said, because you do an amazing job of looking at that stuff, which I, I had never really heard much about.
0: Well, again, I mean, back to Jerry Siegel. I mean, Jerry Siegel, he was obviously, I mean, he read the pop occultism of the time. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about Lex Luthor as, as Alistair Crowley. Uh, you know, if you look at sort of the, the classics, golden age depictions of, of Luther, I mean, he looks exactly like Alistair Crowley, you know, the bald head, you know, so the big barrel chest, you know, and it's this whole idea of, of mad scientists as being the new incarnation of the occultist, you know, the old, the, 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 the you know, the evil magician. It's the same idea. It's just a, it's a new generation. It's a, it's a new way of looking at it. But there's a very interesting origin story, and this is something I talked about on the blog as well. Um, Jerry Siegel wrote this story, um, it was actually a Superboy story, but it was how, uh, Superman met lex luthor and what it was is that lex luthor was this sort of whiz kid the scientific whiz kid who had you know it was funny because it's like this obvious sort of homoerotic undercurrent that he had this like crush on superman (laughs) and to impress him he he creates a homunculus you know he creates out of chemicals and it's like straight out of the the crowley handbook of of taking these uh you know alchemical formulas to create a homunculus and that's exactly what lex luthor does except for you know the whole thing goes awry and superboy comes and saves him but it's a very strange story that you know lex luthor loses his hair and and hates superman forever because superman you know saved him as 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 superboy from you know certain death at the hands of this chemical homunculus who was just wreaking <laughs> havoc throughout his laboratory and, uh, <laughs> and that's why lex luthor hates him I I think you know Grant Morrison, who's another guy. uh, People who are into uh, disinformation.com, you know, he's done a lot of work with them or did a lot of work with them. He had a very interesting take on um, uh, Superman and Lex Luthor's sort of antagonism in this uh, recent book he did called All Star Superman. And basically, what it was is that you know Lex Luthor sees Superman as an alien interloper. You know, he's an alien. You know, intruding in human affairs, you know, that he, that should be left to people like Lex Luthor, who are the, you know, the great geniuses, who are the, the fruit of, of, of human civilization. That Superman isn't this alien messiah, he's this, uh, he's a bully, you know, he's, he's an interloper. You know, he comes from, uh, across the galaxy and he starts telling us what to do. And I thought that was a really, you know, just a very subversive take. On that whole antagonism, but like I said, I mean, Siegel had, you know, put a lot of mythic elements into this. A lot of uh, ideas from the Hercules mythos. This this hasn't been something that I've been writing about on the blog because I've really moved on to all these other topics. But you know, I really spent a lot of time sort of augmenting what I wrote in Our Gods Were spanics in the blog and sort of looking at. Uh, you know, the whole origins of Superman, because it's just, it's so fascinating, because it's almost like this culmination of all these different uh, memes, sort of almost uh, incarnating in this character.
2: In the book, you describe comic book fans as having an intimate relationship with comics, often as a result of childhood trauma. I thought that was really an intriguing sort of observation i guess uh could you extrapolate that on that a little bit more and, and and sort of where you came up with that idea
0: well that's sort of you know what we spoke of before that this you know there's still this huge uh community within the fan base of of people my age who grew up during the 70s who grew up with you know no structure in their lives, uh, often divorce or foster families. I mean, how old are you?
2: I'm 31. I'm gonna be 31 like in a week.
0: And, and so that means you were born in '79. Yeah. Well, you're good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So that that was sort of the tale. I mean, the '70s were a disaster to be. You know, it was a terrible time to be a kid uh, in a lot of ways, and basically, in a lot of ways, comics were really the you know, the only thing that was really speaking to kids on their own terms. Uh, you know, the only pop art form. Uh, movies were all being made for adults. You know, television was all, was, you know, ch- children's television or children's-oriented television in the 70s was terrible. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are nostalgic for it, but, you know, if you can sort of step away and look at it objectively, that stuff was terrible. <laughs> um, you know, comics were really the only thing, And and rock and roll, I would say. But even rock and roll was was sort of edging older. You know, you had soft rock, which was, you know, more oriented towards people in their 30s and things like that. So, I mean, the only thing that you had was was comic books. And it's interesting because, you know, punk rock sort of had, you know, a big crossover with comics that, you know, a lot of the original punk rock uh, bands and everything were all really into comic books and stuff and sort of, Took that sort of aesthetic, you know, onto the stage, and it, it sort of spoke to the fact that, you know, you had a few scattered sci-fi films, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't really until Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars changed the equation, but until Star Wars uh, came around, there was this huge stretch of time where nothing good was being produced for for kids and, and teenagers. You know, I mean it was a disaster. It was terrible. And it was during that time, you know, where you had these social indicators that were all trending downwards and, you know, very little positive escapism for people to, to, to you know, sort of soothe these wounds with that the comic books were there. Comic books were there. This was sort of the, the last decade where you could find comics in any newsstand or drugstore they were cheap, you know, uh, they were a quarter until I think 1976 or so. And then, you know, by the end of the decade, they, they weren't any higher than 40 cents. So it was just, it was the only thing that you had, you know, if you were sort of a sensitive soul, you know, the kind of people who might be interested in, you know, esoterica, is, you know, it was a big crossover. People are interested in esoterica, people are interested in pop culture, you know, same sort of same, uh, headspace in, in a lot of ways yeah and like i said i mean you had a lot of people these hippie freak weirdos in the 70s who were bringing all this crazy countercultural psychedelic stuff into the comics
2: yeah interesting yeah yeah now i'd be remiss if I didn't ask about uh and I'm sure my forum members would be upset if i didn't ask about howard the duck yeah like, what what happened there i, I didn't realize like that the comic book was considered, like, so good, and then the movie was, like, such a disaster.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, we you of Phantom Menace? Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody was like, oh, I can't wait to see Phantom Menace. And they thought it was going to be, you know, the original Star Wars. And I said, well, listen, Star Wars was made by the uh, George Lucas, who made, you know, THX 1138 and American Graffiti. Phantom Menace is being made by the, the George Lucas who made Howard the Duck <laughs> and, yeah. and, and Willow. <laughs> you know? uh, basically, it's, just, it's, it's translation. And, and also, I mean, Howard the Duck was very much of its time. It's very much of the 70s. It's very much of that sort of dyspeptic, cynical mood. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's 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 like you can't make an all in the family movie in the eighties, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's part of its time and it just didn't translate. I mean it was a great comic, but I, I you can't visually translate that. You know, you can't put a little kid in a duck suit and then sort of pull that off. I mean you know, part <laughs> of it is the seamless nature between, you know, realistic drawing and cartoony drawing. It's 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 a lot easier to sort of meld those Uh, you know, if somebody's going to do a hard, the duck movie today, they do it all CGI, you know? Yeah. But, um, Steve Gerber, very interesting. The guy who created that, um, also worked with Jack Kirby. You know, if you just do Jack Kirby, the Jack Kirby tag on my uh, blog, very bizarre and, and disturbing 9-11 sort of premonition story that they did in 1984 together. And then I was just watching Star Trek. I mean, this really freaky, uh, Star Trek story that Steve Gerber wrote that, um, was about like stargates, and <laughs> it's just like a really trippy story that sort of anticipated this this whole idea that the Iraq War was really about trying to find the stargate. I'm sure you, you've heard oh, those yeah. things, yeah. And uh, you know, this this is from 1989, and this is the whole thing that I'm trying to talk tell to tell people about the creative mind is that the creative mind opens itself to energies and influences that maybe. Others that aren't in that headspace can't identify with. You know, it's like things are going on out there. There are these, you know, whispers in the air, so to speak, that the uh, creative thinker who's constantly trying to receive, you know, he's he's got his, you know, his antenna on constantly. And Steve Gerber is a great example of that. I mean, Power the Duck really resonated at, at that point in time. And then, you know, we had some very interesting, Emanations, sort of aftershocks of that, but uh, yeah. So I mean, it's just basically the, the the short story is that it just you can't take a seventies icon and put it in the middle of, of the eighties, you know, the, the Reaganite eighties.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once I I happened upon power the Duck uh, on cable the other night and posted about it on the forum and was greeted with a lot of groans, so that's partially why I asked them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've never been able to sit through the whole movie myself, you know?
2: I'm one of those people that once you start watching the movie, you have to finish it no matter how bad it is, and this was, it was pretty bad. It was uh, it was weird. That's probably the best way to describe it. It was just strange. It was like...
0: Psychedelic in a bad way.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what's in the works for you here as 2010 unfolds and, and going forward? Now, you said that you've been putting these pieces of the manuscript up on the blog. Do you have plans to put this 500-page book out there for people to read, or, or what, what do you have going on that, that's in the works?
0: Um, that book needs to be rewritten um, from the ground up, and it won't be a 500-page book. <laughs> but um, I do have a, a, a new book coming out in November. And that book is on rock and roll, which is sort of spandex does rock and roll. Nice. So that's what people have to look forward to. And I'm really looking forward to that book because that gave me a chance to, you know, delve into my, my history and, and, and music and things that I'm really passionate about. Um, I don't get a ch- chance to do a lot of music stuff on the blog because I I, I don't want to stretch the mandate too far. Yeah. But some, music is something I'm very passionate about. So that's what people have to look forward to, and just I'm going to continue uh, on the blog um, and uh, just keep going. I mean, as long as all this stuff is flying around out there, I'm going to be blogging about it.
2: Awesome, sounds good. And as uh, as I will have mentioned at the uh, in the pre-taped introduction, I got to thank you here as we close out the conversation. You really saved our ass big time when the equipment went down. Uh, we we taped the interview but it really wasn't up to snuff, up to BOA quality and, and since you're a big time BOA audio listener, you're part of the crew, I guess you could say. So you yeah. you, you offered to sit down and, and <laughs> be be put under the knife again by me and I really appreciate that more than I can even say, uh, you know, here on the show and and, and more than I can even really put into words. Uh you know, that's a huge sacrifice on your end, and I want to just thank you publicly here on the show here at the end just just for doing that. I mean, it was really awesome of you to do. You could have said, dude, I gave you three fucking hours. <laughs> like, I don't give a fuck how you sound or how it sounds. You got your fucking interview. Leave me alone. But, you know, and I, I never would have even asked to retape it if you hadn't offered. So, I mean, just thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. You know, just make me
0: sound good. Hey, I told you I will.
2: <laughs> and on that note, uh, you know, I'll we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much, not only for giving us an amazing amount of time, but, you know, just for joining us here on the program, sharing this information on uh, Our Gods Wear spandex as well as The Secret Sun. What's the title of the new book that's going to be coming out? Do you know yet? Uh, that's a mystery. Is that the title, or is, is, or is it a mystery?
0: It's it's a mysterious
2: title that will be okay. revealed at a later date. All right. I thought for a minute the title was That's a Mystery.
1: <laughs> that would be really
2: confusing for people. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I can almost guarantee, dude, that uh, we'll we have you back on the show next year to uh, talk about that. So I look forward to talking to you again, and obviously we're going to be in touch behind the scenes here uh, (laughs) as uh, the year unfolds and going forward. So thank you so much again for coming on the show, Chris. I really appreciate
0: it. My pleasure. Thank
2: you. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. I've already heaped a boatload of praise and thanks to him, but let me do it once again. Big, big, super huge thanks to Christopher Knowles for coming on the show and being a real trooper, giving us so much additional time. Really, I can't thank the guy enough. You can find out more information from Christopher Knowles at his website, www.secretsun.blogspot.com. Pretty simple, all one word, secretsun.blogspot.com. If you're not reading The Secret Son, you're really missing out on some tremendous and mind-blowing material from Christopher Knowles, so be sure to check it out. Before we dive into BOA Audio listener feedback, let me throw a really super quick plug-in here for our spinoff program, the BOA Audio Lost Cast. Jeremy Vaney of Paratopia fame, and I discuss the final season of ABC's Lost, one of the most thought-provoking and compelling TV shows I've ever seen. We're going to be digging into Lost throughout the final season on the BOA Audio Lost cast. You definitely want to check it out if you're a Lost fan. And as I teased when we announced the Lost cast last week, we're going to be bringing in some special guests. For our second episode, we've got Jeff Ritzman, also of Paratopia fame, and he'll be joining us to share some of his theories on Lost and give us his perspective on the latest edition of Lost, which aired on February 9th. And we're already working on another cool guest for next week's edition of the Lost cast, so keep an eye out at BOA for more information on that. It's fun, it's wacky, it's a little bit different, but I've kind of wanted to do a spin-off program for a while, at least get my feet wet with the concept, and considering we knew that there would be a limited amount of episodes here in the final season of Lost. I thought it was the perfect opportunity to stretch our legs a little bit and take a crack at a BOA Audio spinoff. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got two shorties here, which is good because we're up against the gun. So let me just dive right in and we'll get cooking. The first one comes from Tom. No hometown listed, merely Tom. And here's what he has to say. I can't remember which show it was where you were saying that you were going to get your audio fixed, but don't worry about it. Your audio is just fine. I can always hear the guest just fine, which is very important when the guest has an accent. Unlike some other internet radio shows where the guest's audio feed is muffled or the guest's audio is low, and you can't hear what they are saying, without turning the volume all the way up. You can just imagine what happens when the host speaks. Signed, Tom. Thank you. So much for writing this email, Tom. I really appreciate it. It was really pretty uplifting for me. Most of the time when people write to me about the sound quality of the show, it is to complain. I think that's probably just human nature, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of mentality. So I don't take it personally, and thankfully we only get a handful of emails every season from people who are not happy with the audio quality I don't listen to other internet radio shows as I've said when I appear on other internet radio shows, so I can't judge our show against them. All I can really say is that at the end of the day, making sure you can hear the guest is priority number one, making sure that I'm not super loud in the episode is priority number two, and eventually we will upgrade to some kind of more modern recording system, I'm sure. Thank you for writing in, Tom. I really appreciate it. It's emails like this that Help me to remember that just because a few people write in to complain about the sound quality, the vast majority of people enjoy it with no problem. Up next, we got an email from Evan in Waltham, Mass. Merely a stone's throw from BOA HQ. Here's what he has to say. Hi, Tim. Love the show. I learned about it last October and have been listening ever since. If you were to sell copies of books, etc., of the guests you have on the show, even at a premium, I would probably buy something every week. Bonus for autographs. Might be a better way of supporting the show than donations alone. Just thought I would throw that idea at you. Cheers, Evan, in Waltham, Mass. I'm going to give you all a little peek behind the curtain, in a sense, and just sort of uh, an idea of the problems that we run into, in a way, as this email got me thinking about that sort of concept. We did try to do a merchandise tie-in a while ago with Jeremy Vaney, who graciously donated a ton of his books to us to give away to folks, who bought merchandise from BOA, and the lesson I learned from that, unfortunately, is that mailing books is expensive. So, all the commissions that we got on the sales of merchandise did not offset the costs to mail the books to people all over America and even, you know, into Europe and stuff. There were folks who bought merchandise from Europe as part of the free book deal, and I had to mail stuff to Europe. I mean, that cost money. So, This is sort of the thing that keeps us from doing that sort of promotion. There is another sort of way we could do this that I just thought of, actually. This is kind of a spontaneous moment here uh, in the post-show taping. But maybe it would be to collect a bunch of different autograph stuff from the guests and do some sort of annual auction to raise money for BOA and make all this stuff available to people. So that's something I'll consider and think a little bit more about because i kind of like that idea and it could be something cool for folks to get the opportunity to pick up some rare merchandise and rare memorabilia from different voa audio guests so thank you evan for planting the seed for what might become a very cool project for banal of america and if folks have any insight into this concept or thoughts on what evan has suggested please shoot me a line and i'd be happy to uh Add your thoughts and opinions into the mix as we percolate on this whole thing. Thank you once again for writing in, Evan. Thank you, of course, to Tom for writing in as well. What about you folks out there who are listening to the show right now? Have you got thoughts on BOA, BOA Audio, and anything else in the world of Esoterica? I definitely want to hear from you, and if your email is pithy or thought-provoking, I'd be happy to read it here at the end of the show on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. How do you get in touch with me? That's simple. There's three ways to do it. First, you can go to banalofamerica.com, B I N N A L L of America.com, and click the contact button. That'll put you down the road to getting in touch with me. Or if you've already got your email set up, or you just got a pen here and you want to jot something simple down, just write down boa Audio at Hotmail.com. That email address will get you in touch with me as well. And finally, it is. The official BOA forum, the US of E.com T H E U S O F E dot Outstanding group of folks there, quite a community growing every week and we love to have newcomers join up in the mix. So if you are someone who enjoys the forum scene and you are an esoterica slash pop culture fan, you definitely want to join up at the US of E Come on over and make yourself at home at the United States of Esoterica, the official BOA forum. So those are the three methods, contact button, email address, and forum. Any of those will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. And it's been a few days since you heard from me last, so we've got a few different cool postings at VOA I should tell you about. First of all, it is Medusa's Ladder by Rochelle Hawks, this time around titled Fata Morgana, A Curious Photograph. This one looks at the esoteric phenomena of simulacra, and I probably mispronounced that, but here's how it's defined the notion of representation through form. Some examples include the Emoto Water Crystals, the New Thought Movement, and its modern spinoff, The Secret, Stan Tenen's Hebrew alphabet, and Drunvalo Melchizedek's Flower of Life. So, I mean, come on, that's some hardcore stuff, and Rochelle Hawks provides some really thoughtful analysis and insight into the simulacra phenomenon, Fata Morgana, a curious photograph, in the latest edition of Medusa's Ladder from Michelle Hawks. And then after that, long-time BOA staff writer Regan Lee checks in with her latest edition of Trickster's Realm. This piece is titled Jellyfish in Space. Once again, another really thought-provoking piece from Regan Lee looking at jellyfish in the skies. UFOs? Are they creatures? I don't know. But they're bizarre, and Regan provides a wealth of information about this jellyfish esoteric phenomenon. So you definitely want to check that one out. It was all new information to me, so hats off to Regan Lee. And actually, yeah, same thing with Rochelle piece. So two really educational pieces from the BOA staff at Banal of America this past week. And, of course... Those are some heavy materials. you got to have some chuckles in there as well. Andy Carone's Disclosure, this time around, titled Evolutionary Process. And I'm looking at it right now, and it's got a wacky alien with a sneeze. And that's all you really need to know. Get over there and check that one out at all of America as well. The rest of the crew is in the bullpen. They've got a bunch of stuff in the works coming at you this coming week at all of America. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth. You just heard me. Talk about two amazing pieces from Regan Lee and Rochelle Hawks. If you're only listening to Benall of America audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're missing out on so much stuff, my friends. BenallAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. You know what comes next. It's time for me to hit you up for donations. Times are tough, tax season's coming around again, I can throw a million excuses at you, but the bottom line is we could use your donations to Benal of America and BOA Audio. How do you do that? That's simple, you go to BOA or the BOA Audio archive page, and you click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to keep the program up and running, commercial-free and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we are going to stay in the UFO realm. Our guest is going to be Angela Joyner. She was a newspaper reporter who broke the story on the Stephenville, Texas, UFO sighting of January 8, 2008, and became really a massively huge breakout star in the world of ufology ever since. So she's been in the field for the last two years. I felt it was time to sit down with Angela Joyner and really dig into not just Stephenville, but the two years since the event and get her perspective on a whole bunch of different stuff. It really was a very enjoyable conversation. As I like to joke, better late than never, we're finally going to explore the infamous Stephenville, Texas UFO sighting of January 8th, 2008. But that's sort of my point in a way with the show here sometimes is when these huge events break I'd like to wait a while to look at them because I feel like we can gain so much more perspective by seeing them with a little bit of hindsight between the event and the conversation. As I noted Angela Joyner broke the story of the Stephenville Texas UFO sighting and then went on to become really the veritable face of this historic UFO event. She was everywhere on the national news on international news talking about the Stephenville, texas ufo sighting we're going to break down the events of 1808 in Stephenville, texas what exactly happened that night we're going to get it put down for the historical record once and for all then we're going to get into the fallout of this ufo sighting what was the town's reaction what was her reaction what were the witnesses thinking as this thing became a global phenomenon we're going to get into all that with angela Joyner. then we're going to find out some never-before-heard details on her departure from the newspaper in Stephenville. She said right there in the conversation that she had never talked about some of this stuff. So you're going to hear exclusive, fresh material from Angela Joyner on the much-discussed and infamous turn of events that made a lot of news in the fallout of the Stephenville sighting. Then we're going to hear her reaction to the UFO community since entering it two years ago. We're going to cover a whole bunch of different aspects of ufology, and Angela Joyner went from being a complete outsider to someone who is rubbing elbows with some of the biggest names in the world of ufology today, and herself has become one of the big names in the field. So, altogether, it's a truly unique opportunity to speak with someone who was at the heart of a ufological hurricane, and not only lived to tell about it, but became a fixture of the UFO community. That's Angela Joyner next week on BOA Audio, Stephenville, Texas, UFO sighting revisited. And on that note, I'm starting to get mush mouth here from talking too much at the end of the show, so we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Christopher Knowles once again for coming on the show, giving us just an amazing amount of time. He'll be back on the show in no time flat, my friends. Don't you worry about that. But until then, be sure to check out his website, secretsun.blogspot.com. And I want to thank Tom and Evan for writing in in the BOA Audio listener feedback segment of the show. You guys rock. And most of all, I want to thank all you great folks out there for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Sticking with us through the rough times, waiting it out when we're down for a couple days and have to postpone the show. I really appreciate that I don't get a ton of people complaining about the lateness of BOA Audio. Stick with us. We're a little raw, my friends. But we're going to keep delivering the goods as best we can week in and week out. And on that note, until next week, this is Tim and all, thanking you for listening and signing off.